Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. We're not going to have generally free market policies for long if we don't put some brakes on the pace of change. And so I think that this applies really uncomfortably for uh, libertarians across a whole range of issues. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Coaston, senior politics reporter with a focus on conservatism. And something I've been really interested in lately is the relationship between libertarians and conservatives. The Cold War brought libertarians and conservatives together in something called fusionism. But in the Trump era, that fusion is starting to break apart. And I'm also interested in what libertarians and libertarian-leaning conservatives will do in a post-Trump GOP that seems less welcoming to libertarian viewpoints than ever before. To talk about this and talk about issues of race and how the right handles race, I am so excited to have The Atlantic's Connor Friedersdorf joining us today. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago on how the left and the right have differed in their views and handling of race and racism, and Connor wrote a really interesting response, which we got into on today's episode. As always, you can email the show with your thoughts and questions at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Connor Friedersdorf. Connor Friedersdorf, thank you for joining me on the Ezra Klein Show. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to get started by talking about you, and because I think you occupy a fascinating space, not just at The Atlantic, but kind of in the world of online and print media, because you are libertarian-leaning, is my assumption. Yes, definitely a civil libertarian, that's clear. Right. Everything else is maybe unclear. I sometimes say that I want to eventually play every part on left, right, and center. Ooh. And I was once invited on, and I wasn't sure where they were slotting me. Oh. Right, it turns out, but... You are a kind of more conservative-leaning civil libertarian. How mm -hmm. would you define that? And what does that mean to you now? And what did it mean when you, kind of, you started out writing at The Atlantic? I think going back to the beginning of my career in journalism, and I started out in newspapers, Right. I've always cared a lot about police abuses. I've always cared a lot about the First and Fourth Amendments. Um, I've always cared about just about everything that civil libertarians on the left and right care about. And my politics aside from that are kind of all over the place. I, I definitely consider myself libertarian-leaning in the sense that I value liberty highly. I think that some people undervalue it. I think that it's an important part of a free society. And I also am a pretty strong Hayekian, which is to say I think the information problem in society is huge and that 
markets are a very important way to non-coercively get around information problems. How would you define information problems? That there's so much information in a complex society like ours that an individual cannot possess, that central planners cannot possess. And if you try to uh, impose any kind of system from the top, you're going to miss a lot of that information. You're going to miss a lot of what's valuable. You're going to miss a lot of what people care about. So what do you think that the information economy that we have now, what do you think it's missing? The information economy, you mean the media and social media and Yes, oh, I think- I, the, all of the above. Because I think that, um, you know, I th- it's interesting when I talk sometimes to folks where they talk about the media, but they mean the mainstream media. And by mainstream media, they mean CNN. It, it's interesting to see how that is reflective because I, you know, I talk a lot to conservatives who have their own entire media outlets, but they don't think of that as being media. They think of it as like, oh, it's conservative media. It's a separate thing. It's not the media. Um, so how would you define, um, in your view, you know, what, what does the information economy look like? Well, well, I want to distinguish. When I talk about Hayek and the information economy, I'm not talking about the mainstream media, right. social media generally. But uh, my kind of broad view of media generally is that it's been just tremendously disrupted by um, the rise of the internet, the rise of social media. And the thing that concerns me the most is the disappearance of local newspapers and local newspaper reporters. Um, it, it seems to me that we're just going to have a lot more corruption in society because there are going to be fewer watchdogs looking at government agencies, at corporations, at the local level. And like I said, I started out as a beat reporter at a newspaper in Rancho Cucamonga, California. I know the kind of work that I was doing and the kinds of things that I was checking into as I've watched the newspaper chain that I uh, used to work for shrink. I know the kinds of things that no one is checking up on, especially you know, living in Southern California for a lot of my life. There are all these municipalities in LA County that people think of as LA but are actually you know, a bunch of different municipalities. And every once in a while, the LA Times will go and dig into one of them. And lo and behold, there's just millions and millions of dollars of uh, pretty brazen graft. P- you know, city council members going on vacation junkets together to foreign countries and billing it to the taxpayer. Really extreme stuff. The kind of thing that if any local newspaper reporter was just doing the normal things, they would catch it. And to me, when someone making 50 grand or 60 grand can catch $30 million of waste, and that isn't happening. There's a public good that is going unmet. I don't know what the solution for that is because I don't know that people will read the old local newspaper bundle anyway, even if it was produced like it used to be. Um, But I think, you know, we can talk about my perception of the flaws of the mainstream media or the conservative media, and I have my critiques of all of them. From a civic perspective, the thing that worries me most is local media in the United States and the survival of only um, the, the worst kind of TV news and the disappearance of people being paid to be watchdogs, regardless of how many people are actually reading their stories about the local police union or the local city council or the local water district or whatever. Do you think that that's contributed to, um, and I've called this the nationalization of local politics? For example, you know, if you are in California, why exactly would you be like riveted to a story of something that's taking place in Baltimore? And you see this a lot in um, kind of right-leaning and left-leaning outlets that are more specific 
with their ideological biases, but just, you know, this store in this state where we do not live is offering, I mean, you see that with the whole like the drag queen story hour thing taking place where it's not taking place anywhere near anyone who is talking about it, but it is happening somewhere in America. And kind of how national outlets are basically having to fill the gaps left by the loss of local newspapers. So local stories become national news and are nationalized in a sense. Do you think that that's harmful? And do you think that that's kind of what we're seeing as a result of the loss of local news? I do think that's part of what we're seeing. Um, You know, I think that there are a few different things going on. One is that People are reading local newspapers and the quality has gone down and they have – I think that's part of the reason that people have less trust in media generally, that when they read about the things that they know the best, they shake their heads and, uh, you know, of course things are worse because the city editor who knows everything got fired and you have someone fresh out of college writing stories about things that have been going on for decades and it's really tough to get that right. Uh, It's – not even the fault of the journalists in most cases. It's that there just aren't the resources there to do the kind of good work that there used to be. And people notice that decline and they map it on to the New York Times, say, when there's really no logical connection there. Maybe they shouldn't. Uh, I also think that papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post are reaching a bunch of readers from a class that is more likely to have gone away to college somewhere, more likely to have moved cities for a job, Uh, less likely to be rooted in one place for their whole life. And I think that it makes sense that that audience uh, that's maybe lived in three or four places that have friends in a bunch of different places, that they want a product that covers things nationally and not just locally. And so I, I think it makes sense from that perspective and that at the same time, something probably is lost when you have people in uh, San Francisco reading the New York Times and relying on it for even their local coverage and not investing in the Chronicle, say, uh, which could be much better if a bunch of the people that live there demanded that it be better and also patronized it. Going back to, um, you talked about your focus on civil liberties, and I think that's, I've read a lot of your work specifically on police brutality and police issues. Many conservatives who think of themselves as being very concerned about the expansion of government and the expansion of federal power are not as concerned by the state when it operates as law enforcement. Why do you think that that, you know, kind of the limited government and keeping the government out of your house doesn't seem to apply for some on the right when it comes to law enforcement? Well, I think a couple of things are going on. I think most people think of the police officers they interact with uh, as local people, not as federal law enforcement. You know, a lot of the people who aren't worried about what their local police department is doing uh, will talk your ear off about Ruby Ridge and the federal government, right? There is that kind of person who isn't terribly concerned about their local police department, but is very concerned about an overweening federal government or the idea that uh, the federal government is going to come and take their guns or something like that. At the same time, among intellectual conservatives, it's always seemed to me that there's a bunch of support for police reform. Um, yeah, I think you know, that certainly been with the Koch Foundation yeah. and that whole wing of conservatives, and right, certainly with the reason folks, things like that. Yeah, so I I think that it's really just a function of the conservative movement and the Republican Party being made up of this weird coalition that involves people who like small government and also involves uh, people with an authoritarian predisposition, and they're all mixed together. And I'll also say that 
it seems to me that police shootings, uh, which is not all of police abuses, but the part that's kind of gotten the most focused lately, is often happening in jurisdictions that are controlled by Democrats that are in blue states. And it isn't clear to me that there is more concern in a way that affects the politics in a lot of blue jurisdictions compared to a lot of red jurisdictions. You know, if you compared Oklahoma City, say, to Los Angeles, the activism, the small percentage of people who are actually out in the streets protesting might look very different. But in terms of a big enough cohort to kind of affect how things actually happen, how union contracts are actually negotiated, there are places like Baltimore where it becomes a big focus. But I think there are a lot of blue jurisdictions where people don't really pay much attention to it among Democrats either. And so it could be that Republicans are less concerned about their local police department, but I'm not entirely sure. And I would wonder how much ideology plays into it, how much class plays into it, and attitudes toward policing and personal experience with policing. I kind of want to see more before I drew any conclusions. So something that I think is interesting about that is that I think among police, and you're seeing this in New York right now, there very much is an idea that they're, that the police are like the last bastion before like the complete disintegration of society. And you see that with kind of the basic language from police unions. And you see that even in places that are controlled by Democrats, even African-American Democrats, that there is a view that the police are, in a sense, like a localized military, that they are separate from the population they serve and that they are to be treated differently. And I think we see this in when we people even talking about policing, that this idea that like, you know, policing is an inc- is one of the most dangerous professions. It isn't. It just isn't um, based on the data on deaths on the job. It is sometimes a dangerous profession, but it is generally not one of the most dangerous professions. Radley Belko had the book of The Rise of the Warrior Cop and this idea of the police as being treated in some senses as a separate entity unto itself that should be able to police itself and doesn't need to be as concerned with police relationships. Because I think, you know, something that I would push back on is that police brutality and the sentiments that create police brutality that exist in blue states and red states and blue communities and red communities, that happens when there is a breakdown of trust between the police and the people being policed. And I think that there's a sense in a lot of places in, say, suburban Oklahoma City, because I'm sure that, you know, downtown Oklahoma City and kind of the surrounding inner ring might have a different relationship. But I think in suburban areas, there's very much of a sense that your only encounter with the police is when they come to do a dare presentation at your kid's school, not when they're pulling you over for, you know, as we saw in Ferguson, for basically for ticketing to keep the police department afloat. So how do you think that that sense of separation from the community that seems to take place in communities that are generally urban, generally African-American, and generally poor, how do you think that contributes to the the atmosphere that creates police brutality? Wow. There's a lot in there. One of the books that's influenced me the most in thinking about this is Ghetto Side by Jill Leovey. I think of Radley Belko's work talking about the rise of militarized police and SWAT teams and this kind of separate, almost paramilitary attitude. And then I think of someone like Heather McDonald, who writing from the right at places like City Journal wants to make the case that people in poor neighborhoods are hurt the most when there is a loss of trust in police. And she gets angry every time people like me write stories at places like The Atlantic saying, look at these police abuses. And she wants to say, uh, you 
journalists keep picking at police abuses, and sure, there are some abuses, but she wants to say, on the whole, police do a good job, and it's very important, I think she's saying implicitly, that we treat them with respect and um, have support for them in the community. So if you could think of Balco and McDonald kind of arguing with one another. I would I would very much like to see that. I think it's happened once, actually. I think there might be an old blogging head. I would, they... I would, I, I must go find yeah. this. And so if you think of that kind of conversation going on between them, Jill Yovi comes in and writes this wonderful book where she embeds with a homicide detective in, um, I think it was South Los Angeles proper, but it might have been Compton, somewhere in that area. And basically, she makes the case that this area is both under-policed and over-policed, which is to say you have people being roughed up on corners for low-level drug crimes and feeling like the police are an occupying force in their neighborhood and this terrible history of um, police oppression, basically, that resulted in both Watts and the riots after the Rodney King beating. You have this very fraught relationship. And then you also have, at the same time, people in this neighborhood seeing loved ones murdered and seeing the clearance rate be tremendously low. And she would argue that the murder rate is high in that neighborhood in part because so few murders are solved that people use self-help and that in any community around the world where you can't rely on the state to help in this situation, you will have self-help in this sense. And she basically makes the case that, look, you want respect for police, you want to invest in policing, but what if instead of having rookie cops go in these neighborhoods that they don't understand and arrest people for small infractions, you invested in things like tinting the windows of the homicide detective's car so that a witness could have a ride to the police station and not be seen by everyone in the neighborhood. Why don't you uh, have homicide detectives that live in the neighborhood and that focus on solving the most serious crimes and that give people the same treatment when they have a loved one who is killed that someone in a wealthier neighborhood gets? and focus there and maybe transform the relationship uh, between police and communities. Um, I would also only say that my own retort to the Heather McDonald critique is that people in neighborhoods like the one that Leovi was writing about, they don't mistrust police because people at The Atlantic are writing stories about police abuses. It's, it's insane to believe that. And I do think that loss of trust in police can lead to a cycle of violence that ends up hurting um, the very people who were hurt by bad policing to begin with. I just think that it is almost always on the police department themselves. If you look at the report into Ferguson, a lot of um, a lot of conservatives want to point to the Department of Justice findings about Michael Brown and say, well, that shooting was justified. Whether that shooting was justified or not, the rest of that Office of Civil Rights report was just scathing about, you know, decades of terrible policing in Ferguson. That is why you had the reaction. That is why you had the distrust. So I think that uh, – I really think that the City Journal case that is associated with Heather McDonald that, that a lot of conservatives make is actually pretty weak and that you see it especially with things like stop and frisk ending and all of the warnings about – the rise in crime that would follow, right? Not Which materializing. Which didn't happen. And I, th I think National Review actually posted something like, okay, it didn't happen. Right. We were wrong. And that is an extreme thing, taking right. people for years and years and throwing them up against walls and searching them in what seems to me like a plain violation of any sane understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And it 
isn't treated like a big deal that we did that apparently needlessly for years and years and years. But um, I, I think it's an example of a huge reform that is good that it is gone and also a cautionary tale for people on the right who um, I think need to test their ideas about, yes, to some degree, uh, policing is, of course, very important. I don't think any careful observer really disagrees with that. But the particular tactics that were being used, some of the most repressive tactics, just weren't necessary in many cases. So I think that actually leads into um, a larger conversation about the the strange mix that is the conservative movement of sorts, which you just talked about, of being this mix of kind of right-leaning libertarians who are very cautious about state power and then people with more authoritarian mindset. And so first, I'd like you to, to explain a little bit more about what, when you say authoritarian mindset, what do you mean? Yeah, so I've been drawing lately a lot on the work of a woman named Karen Stenner who did her research in, I think at Duke first and then later at Princeton and wrote this book called The Authoritarian Dynamic that struck me as one of the most prescient books about what was going to happen in American politics and in actually Western politics more generally in, in the years after she wrote it. And she defines authoritarian basically if you strip away all the connotations you have of the word and just think of it as a predisposition, uh, a personality type that values oneness and sameness very highly and is made uncomfortable by difference and diversity. A kind of person who in some contexts would be completely innocuous and you wouldn't even know that they had this predisposition and in other contexts under certain conditions of threat will react in ways that value oneness and sameness so highly that they're willing to support highly coercive and repressive policies in order to enforce oneness and sameness on others. Um, they're very uncomfortable with differences of all kinds, right? And what they view as different and other could be very malleable. This personality type might be living in a place that is entirely white or a place in time and history that is entirely white and participating vociferously in Protestant versus Catholic wars because that is the other. Uh, in another time and place, they might grow up in a mixed race house and someone of a different race they don't consider a part of another. And at the same time, they really are uncomfortable going to the kind of restaurant that they've never tried before and they really just want what is familiar. So it's important to not automatically slot authoritarian as bad person or acting perniciously, although this authoritarian predisposition often leads to some of the most bad and pernicious things that you see in societies. And the way that um, – but the simplest way to think of it is that there's a spectrum from people who are really excited and energized and uh, have an affinity for difference and diversity. And there are people who uh, are somewhere in between and there are people who really dislike and are made uncomfortable by these things. And in liberal democracies, you're always going to have – difference, diversity, differences in values, different opinions being expressed. And this can be very uncomfortable for someone with a predisposition to uh, be made uncomfortable by difference. Do you think that that in some ways is contributing to the debates and kind of the crack up that is taking place within and among conservatives as on the one hand, there are kind of libertarians and specifically left-leaning libertarians. And, you know, I've spoken to some folks at the Libertarian Party who are basically saying, like, this is not going to work. We cannot work with conservatives in the way that we used to think we could. Mm -hmm. And then you see kind of the growth of the post-liberal 
conservative who essentially is saying that libertarianism was a giant problem for us and and continues to be a giant problem for us. How do you see this this relationship between people with an authoritarian mindset and people who do not have that mindset? How do you see that playing into this debate politically? I have a lot of hypotheses, and I'm not sure uh, which are correct and which aren't. But some of the things I think about about the changing landscape of conservatism, if you look back at the Reagan coalition um, and conservatism for years preceding that, anti-communism and opposition to the Soviet Union and a particular kind of idea of how the United States ought to respond to that big kind of existential um, great power relationship was a big part of the conservative coalition. And it really, in terms of Karen Stenner's work, it's easy to see how communism was the other. And that made it easier, I think, to paper over a lot of differences among people who shared their anti-communism and did not share a lot of other things. So that's one thing that's gone on, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the rise of, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS as a different kind of enemy that maps onto a bunch of different things differently. And also 9-11 is kind of a shock to the American system that you know, the kind of people who are comfortable in some settings and then have this latent predisposition to authoritarianism activated, you know, a mass casualty attack on a country is just the kind of thing that could lead to that. And the Bush administration crackdown on civil liberties um, is the kind of thing that could polarize authoritarians and libertarians into different camps and have them kind of reacting against one another in this cycle. So, I think that that, to some degree, is going on. I think that the rise of social media is something that is important, too. I think that it exposes people to a lot more differences of opinion and values than they were previously. And I often wonder about the periods of time after the printing press, right, and the religious wars that followed, and the rise of radio, and yellow journalism, and um, – television and the tumult of the 60s. And you kind of see these times when you have a big change in mass media and political tumult that goes along with it. I think that that is part of what's going on. I also think that Donald Trump is a weird character that it's hard to imagine him without his celebrity. I wonder if as authoritarian a candidate could win absent the show on NBC for years that made a lot of people intuitively comfortable with him, feeling like they know this guy and they're not really worried about him. That's just Donald, right? And so I hope that it would be impossible for someone to win uh, with Trump's qualities if not for NBC putting them in people's living rooms for year after year after year and saying, oh, look at this successful businessman. Uh, but we'll see about that. One thing I think is interesting, and I'm glad you brought up Trump, is that I think one of the lessons from 2016 is—I'll put this up this bluntly—a lot of people who thought they knew what they were talking about did not know what they were talking about. And I think you see this, and um, you know, I'm using air quotes, which is an annoying thing to do. But when people talk about the conservative elites, there was very much of an understanding when you talk to folks at AEI or the Heritage Foundation or kind of the. Conservative intelligentsia, 
that they thought what voters wanted also happened to be what they wanted, that voters were deeply interested in voters don't want free health care, voters don't want these series of things, voters are very, you know, that conservative voters want what just so happens to be produced by the Heritage Foundation or, you know, Paul Ryan's A Better Way or that, that kind of idea. And then in 2016, voters essentially said, no, we don't want that. You know, we looked at Ted Cruz and said, no, thank you. And I think that there's a sense now that a lot of conservatives are recognizing that what they thought they were fighting for, the idea of, for example, limited government. I wrote that if conservatism supports a limited government, but that also means that that the government is no longer involved in the formation of nuclear families, for Mm -hmm. example, or if conservatism supports free markets, but free markets mean that your children can access pornography. I think that there is a sense that what they thought they were fighting for, they were doing so on the understanding that people would not use the freedoms they'd been working for to do things they don't want to do. It's been interesting to see the number of, and you've written about Tucker Carlson, and I've spoken to him multiple times, the number of people who their understanding of this and the ire that you see at the... uh, Chamber of Commerce wing of the GOP, as they term it, is that what they believed conservatism was fighting for has resulted in things conservatives did not want. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right to notice lots of contradiction in what lots of people said that they believed in what they're fighting for in their behavior with regard to Trump. Uh, You know, as someone who's followed Rush Limbaugh for a long time, for example, it's shocking to see him. Um, did you know that no one cares about debt and that maybe they never did? Right. And it's news to me. <laughs> there's been a cynicism about people like Limbaugh at the same time for a long time. And I think people, I think conservative elites have long understood that there was a populism to the base that they didn't necessarily share, but that they were going to pander to. And they thought that they could pander to usefully. And, you know, you saw people like George H.W. Bush inviting Rush Limbaugh to the White House and the Claremont Institute giving Rush Limbaugh a statesmanship award. And did they really think that Rush Limbaugh was the most shining example of statesmanship in the model of Churchill? No, of course not. But it was good to uh, have someone who was popular associated with an obscure think tank. And, and, right. and I think that conservative elites, in some sense, lost control at some point of this thing that they thought that they were pandering a little and it wasn't actually going to have very big effects. So I think that's part of what was going on. I think that there was a big gap between what was going on at the elite levels with the Tea Party and what was going on at the grassroots level. And I think that the elites kind of missed some of what was going on at the grassroots level. I observed the Tea Party thinking that a lot of it at the grassroots level was about small government. And in my case, you know, I grew up in Orange County, California. It was a conservative area all of my life. It was always a small government conservative area. And it was the kind of area that changed and flipped away from Trump and has gone blue. And that's partly about demographic change, but it's also partly because the kind of Republicans that I grew up around are the kind of suburban people who uh, really don't like Trump and really actually do like the chamber. Like they love the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce is the best for them. And so part of what's amazing uh, about 
the era of social media is that you can go and find examples of anything. Right. You can go and find people with the craziest contradictions. You can go into any coalition and find the nuttiest people or the one person who had this weird particular mix of views. In a sense, it makes it so that everyone can feel unfairly maligned. And so I think there are still conservatives in places like Orange County that are like, no, we love the Chamber of Commerce. What, what do you want us to say? Um, you know, we are... Ronald Reagan Republicans, and if he was on the ballot next to Trump, he would win in a landslide here. And uh, if you don't move around the country or interview lots of people from lots of different places, it's very easy to be in your bubble of what conservatism is and to miss all of the other bubbles. And I think that is part of why someone like Trump took so many people by surprise and why there's so much resistance to recognizing what he is. Because People in places that went for Ted Cruz in the primaries, of which there were many, right, look around and see the conservatives around them. And they're like, no, we're kind of Ted Cruz conservatives or no, we're kind of Marco Rubio conservatives. These are senators. These are people with big constituencies, even though they ultimately lost this hugely contested weird primary. Right. And so I think it's both true that conservatives, a lot of conservatives, especially at the elite levels, missed the kind of Trumpist insurgency and thought it was going to be Pat Buchanan all over again, this small thing that could never have a chance of winning. And at the same time, I think a lot of conservatives are rightfully uh, rightfully object when people say Trumpism is all the Republican Party or conservatism has been all along and it was just hiding. So what you, you, you said that people were missing what Trump is. And I'd be interested to see what how you would define what Trump or Trumpism is. You know, I've argued before that in 2016, Trump was basically a tabula rasa upon which people could project whatever it is they wanted. So you could see a war hawk or a war dove. You could see like the friends, the evangelicals or the most pro-LGBT president. And he would just be like, yes, yes to all of it, which I think, you know, hilariously is a brilliant electoral strategy to just be like, I am whatever you want me to be. Right. But what, what, how would you, what is Trump? I think Trump is certainly an authoritarian. I think that is, you know, and not, not in the colloquial sense, but in the Karen Stenner literature on authoritarianism, right. he is the authoritarian. I don't want to say he's an authoritarian personality type. He seems like one. Uh, he is playing one, certainly. Uh, he is doing all of the things that a politician would do if they read that literature and wanted to activate latent predisposition in authoritarianism and get people riled up and divide people uh, and put some people in another camp and exploit that for political gain. He definitely does all of those things. I think he's also someone who – I think Josh Barrow says this a lot, that Trump's superpower is that he has no shame and – he he really is shameless. He is willing to do or say anything without any care for uh, his reputation in respectable company, without any care of how much people shout at him or try and stigmatize him or embarrass him. Um, he has no shame and he really is distinct. Shamelessness is a, a quality that one sees in politicians sometimes, but it's just a standard deviation beyond anything that I've seen in anyone that ascended to anything like his level. Um, I think that Trump uh, certainly harbors and expresses a lot of racial stereotypes in a way that seems to me reflective of a certain era in New York City in which he came up. And it's, you know, the, the ad about the Central Park Five 
is one of the early ways that you can see this kind of authoritarianism that maps onto a racial other play out in a way that you didn't necessarily see in his years on The Apprentice. I think that uh, a lot of people in 2016 who wanted to tell themselves that Trump wasn't racist and who kind of have this cognitive bias of never wanting to think that anyone is racist, they knew this guy from spending hours with him on television and he didn't strike them as particularly antagonistic toward anyone on his television show. And they weren't big consumers of media. And maybe they hear once in a while that Trump said this or that in a rally, but 90% of what they knew about Trump came from watching him in celebrity settings. And a very small percentage came from the mainstream media, and they were relatively low information voters. And this weird matrix of celebrity and um, partisan and ideological bubbles in the media that they consume allowed them to ignore what should have been glaring warning signs. And I hope that some of those people will defect in the next election. Of course, all of them won't. And of course, some of them like that. Uh, but I, I do hope that, you know, on the margins, a few more people will recognize him for what he is. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about race. I want to get back to your point about people who recognized in some, you know, they didn't think of Trump as being all that racist. You know, they saw him on TV. It didn't seem that antagonistic. I think that one of the challenges we have, and we're going to talk about this, is that when people think about the word racist, the idea is that you go to straight up, like, ghosts of Mississippi, Klansmen. And not the idea that racist is a descriptor and that racism looks different in a lot of different ways. You know, Trump's racism is the racism of someone who assume that Ben Carson and members of the Congressional Black Caucus already knew each other. Or the racism of, you know, thinking that there are, you know, as my colleague Matt Iglesias made the point that there are Americans and there are people who are less American and he could determine who those might be based on racial or ethnic characteristics. And I would argue that for a lot of Americans, even non-white Americans, there are certain degrees of that with which they have some familiarity. You know, I think I personally have encountered many people for whom I am the first non-white person they've known well. And so do you think that that played a sense that it's not so much that they didn't think of him as being racist? It's that their racism and his racism seemed pretty similar. So they didn't seem to notice. Sure. I, I think that that holds for a bunch of voters for sure. Part of it is just how people are defining the word, right? Whether they think of themselves as racist or not. I mean, like I said, Trump definitely engages in racial stereotypes. Trump definitely lashes out and otherizes different groups, right? Sometimes those are racial groups. Often they're um, religious or national origin groups and you can even get into debates uh, about whether to call that racism or not, uh, whether saying, oh, these are shithole countries, is that racism? There are definitions where you could say yes, and there are definitions that you could say no. I mean, one of the interesting things in Stenner's research is the way that racial antagonism is expressed by authoritarians differs depending on whether uh, a person of a racial group that they consider other is present or not. And when they're in the room doing the interviews, she finds that uh, the levels of antagonism spike in a way that they don't in an all-white setting. And to me, that maps onto 
a lot of white people in relatively uh, racially segregated areas of America that don't see the racists in their midst because they have no occasion to witness the negative interactions. And so I think that that's part of what's going on, too. So I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago um, arguing essentially that, like, what if the left were correct about racism on the right <laughs> and that it turns out that movement conservatism, you know, and I like to differentiate because I think there's conservatism, which is like the philosophical underpinnings of the conservative movement. There's movement conservatism, which is trying to get those underpinnings into law. And then there's the right, which is everything on kind of that side of the ideological aisle. You know, it's the same reason that when we're talking about the left and liberals, and sometimes people use that interchangeably, right. which I think would make, you know, a whole host of folks over at the Jacobin very confused and angry. Yes. Um, so when, you know, when I'm talking about the right, I am not necessarily talking about conservatism. But, you know, I argued that the right has had a race problem and a problem with racism for decades now. You know, this has been something that's been going on for a very long time. This has been something that African-American conservatives called out in the 50s and 60s. This has been an ongoing issue. You wrote a response, and we're going to link everything in the show notes. But um, you noted uh, Stenner's research on authoritarianism, which is the first I had heard of her work. But something that was interesting is that, you know, the fear of difference, including fearing different na you know, nationalities or races, isn't that a form of racism itself? Arguably. Again, it depends on how you define it, right? If Mexicans fear Guatemalans, is that a form of racism or is it a form of is xenophobia a better word for it? I think xenophobia is a better word for that. Uh, not because I am objecting to stigmatizing it or saying it's not harmful. I just think it's it's more descriptive. And I think that both things exist. I think that the important distinction that that I wanted to make in that piece or one of them was that Authoritarians behave in racist ways many times when they define a person of a different race as other. And I don't object to calling that behavior racist. I just think it's important to understand what the root of that behavior is, that it's not necessarily ideological white supremacy, although that exists. And when that exists, you can combat that in a certain way. But when what's going on is fear of difference, uh, and the, it's all kinds of different differences, it just affects how you go about fighting back against it, how you go about trying to lessen its effect in society. So how would that happen? Because I think that from, from my view, it seems that wherever your racism is coming from, mm -hmm. your racism is still being put onto non-white people yes. or you know people of all yeah. different ethnicities. The pernicious effect is the same. The, right, The exactly. damage is the same. And personally, I don't much care if it, your racism is because you're afraid of me or because you believe that you're superior to me. Either way, I'm stuck. I'll give you an example of right. wh why this distinction matters. Okay. So let's say that there was a bunch of Syrian refugees that were going to be relocated to a community somewhere, let's say Wyoming. And let's say that a community activist who wanted these people to be welcomed was going to write an op-ed in the local newspaper encouraging this or was going to go on the local NPR affiliate and had the opportunity to get a message out that some number of people would hear to reassure them, right? One message that this person could give is, yeah, I interacted with these people and it was so cool because there were all these different kinds of food I got to try that I'd never had before. There were all these different cultural dances that I never witnessed before. It was just a beautiful celebration and it's just going to add such rich diversity to our community, right? Another message might be, yeah, I went and isn't it amazing that these people are from so far away 
And yet uh, the way that they care about their children reminded me just of the way that I fear for my children. You can emphasize the diversity and celebrate it. You can emphasize the difference. Um, if you want these people to be accepted, the effective message is to emphasize the ways that they are the same and not to emphasize the ways that they are different among the people who ultimately fear difference. Among the people who are ideological white supremacists, neither of those messages is going to matter, right? Uh, because the fact that they are not white alone is enough for them to hate and object to their presence in the community. And so if you were somehow targeting the message to white supremacists, it wouldn't matter at all. And the, so like these distinctions matter as far as the way that politicians talk. You know, in my piece, I talked about Obama's speech at the DNC in 2004 as a, a speech that pulled off both celebrating America's diversity and emphasizing an underlying oneness and sameness in a way that I thought was both politically effective and that squared things that I value as a as one of the like libertarians in Stenner's taxonomy that really values diversity. So I think that like if the left understands this dynamic better and that some of this is rooted in a differencism that sometimes manifests in racism as racism and sometimes manifests in other ways, it just makes it much easier to um, to combat and to see more clearly what's going on. On that, you know, you said that uh, promiscuous labeling may erode the stigma associated with ra the word racist. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've seen this argument a bunch of times with regard to, you know, if we're re you, we should be using different terminology. I think um, Molly Hemingway went on Jamie Weinstein's show and was talking about, you know, there are lots of words with which you could describe Trump's tweets about the, the quote-unquote squad. But, you know, using the word racist is the wrong one. Why is that? Because if it's, you know, if I yeah. think something is racist— I should say it's racist. And then I'm aware that yeah. for many people, they find that like the accusation of racism is somehow more, way more offensive than the racism itself. But if it just so happens to be accurate, yeah. why why would that be in, harmful? I mean, in the case of the squad, I agree with you and disagree with Molly. When I talk about promiscuous labeling, I think that what, what I urge, uh, and I think I wrote a piece about the squad particularly urging this was... I think an accusation of racism should be accompanied with what do you mean by that? And it should be clear to readers what definition of racism one is working with. Uh, I labeled that attack racist because it seemed to me that Trump was treating congresswomen of color differently because of their race. Uh, he was labeling them an other and asserting that they somehow didn't belong in America and that they should go back as if to another country, not because they weren't born here, in the case of three out of four, but because of their race. He would never lash out at Nancy Pelosi that way. He would never lash out at a white congresswoman that way. So racist seems apt to me. And, you know, when I read work like my colleague Adam Sur, you know, I think he's someone who writes very unsparingly uh, when he is critiquing something. And I like that about him. I think that our job as opinion journalists is to assert what we believe to be right and not worry about it's propaganda effects, right? And so uh, I'm all for labeling racism as racism when it is accurate. Uh, what, what I object to and when I talk about promiscuous labeling are two things. One is a kind of concept creep that puts more and more and more things under the label of racist, right? And white supremacy, I think I have the same critique of. And it seems to me that 
insofar as concept creep is preventing people from understanding what's actually being communicated, it's a problem. There's a funny thing with stigma going on where this is going to be a sloppy way to talk about it. But if you take the if you take the common understanding of racism in 1975, right? And the common understanding of racism in 2019. And those are two different understandings, right? With two different contexts. Because yes, absolutely. With two different contexts. Something that I, I've been, you know, I, when I have these conversations a lot, or people are like, but, you know, people weren't saying this was racist in 1971. I'm like, well, they were busy right. working on, you know, yeah. dealing with Richard Nixon and so, so I think, like that kind of thing. Absolutely. So I think that there's a sense of like, you know, I would argue that a lot of things that people are like, you didn't say this was racist 15 years ago. I'm like, well, w- things change and we have the opportunity to talk yeah. about it now. Yeah. And I'm not endorsing right. either no, definition. I understand. I understand. But uh, what I am saying is that uh, by now, the stuff that was considered racist in 1975, there's a broad social consensus that that stuff is bad and should be heavily stigmatized, right? And with all the things we label racist in 2019, there is not that same uh, broad social consensus around all of those things that they are bad and should be stigmatized. And I sometimes think that part of what's going on with the way these words are used is this kind of meta fight about what the proper level of stigma something should carry. And insofar as that is true, I think that you get around that with the simple with the simple tactic of just saying, and by racist, I mean this. And I think it just clarifies things for everyone. And I personally get frustrated by, um, like, I want to talk about things analytically and understand them. And I'm not, I don't have a dog in the fight usually of like how much stigma is being wielded by whether we call Donald Trump racist or authoritarian or whatever. Like, I, <laughs> whatever the maximum stigma is, let us heap it upon him, whatever we call him, because I think he deserves it. Um, but I often think that. Uh, Some of the reactions I get, some of the emails I get when I say we should understand Trump as an authoritarian uh, and that that anti-authoritarianism is a better framework to fight and then anti-racist, people respond to me as if what I'm trying to do is excuse him somehow because racism carries a heavy stigma and I'm arguing for a different concept. I'm like, no, that's um, that's not what's going on here. Just for edification, how would you define racism? I don't think there is one defensible definition, right? I tend to most object to the use of racism where someone uh, will say, well, racism is an inherent characteristic of all humanity and we're all a little bit racist and we need to all admit to being racist, right? I'm not saying that there is no grain of truth or something they're gesturing at that we shouldn't at least consider or think about. But I am saying that using words that way, it's just like if you label something, everything, then it it loses all meaning. And so from a kind of useful public discourse, like I don't think that we should use the same word for things that we agree that should cost someone their job or never have them hold elective office and say, oh, this is a thing that is true of everyone. That's an example of how I think promiscuous use of the word waters it down. Adam Sir, I think wrote a long time ago um, a really smart piece about this. I'm trying to remember what it was. It might have been a Mother Jones when he was there. Um, it's basically to say that there is a tension here where there's two there's two things. There's two goods. There's, you know, racism is one of the few things that I want stigmatized in society. Um, and at the same time, that stigma makes it harder to talk about uh, relatively small examples that can defensively be called racist, but that 
isn't something where you're saying, oh, this is an abhorrent person that should be outside of polite company, right? Um, it would be useful to have those conversations, and one wants to have them without reducing the stigma for the most abhorrent kinds of racism, and how do you do that? And it's a really tough question. So in your piece, you quote Karen Stenner as writing, showy celebration of an absolute insistence upon individual liberty and unconstrained diversity pushes those by nature least equipped to live comfortably in a liberal democracy not to the limits of their tolerance, but to their intolerant extremes. But I would push back on that by saying that for that person for whom you know, by nature, they are least equipped to live comfortably in a liberal democracy mm -hmm. and are pushed to the intolerant extremes by individual autonomy and unconstrained diversity. To them, I would be like, well, uh, life's tough, isn't it? Yeah. That seems to me in some sense of a form of hostage taking by essentially saying, you know, we will be pushed not by you doing anything, but by your existence or by your taking advantage of, a, of liberty we will be thus pushed by you doing that towards intolerant extremes. How does one deal with, when, when it's in this manner? When, that's that's hostage taking in some senses that a liberal democracy can't be had because some people will get mad about it. Yeah. I mean, look, I think about this constantly with immigration. My preference is to have a – my preference is to have very high rates of immigration right. like many libertarians. and. At times in my life, I, I would have even gone so far as to favor open borders. And what prevents me from holding that position now is a belief that the reaction to it would create an – I don't believe there is a sustainable open border society that is possible right now. I believe that there would be a reaction to it that would make uh, everyone worse off. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't still favor much higher levels of immigration than authoritarians would be comfortable with. I do. And uh, if they say, this makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm like, well, it makes me feel uncomfortable to not let in these immigrants. So tough luck. We just have a disagreement here. Uh, but I do think Stenner estimates that the authoritarian personality type is a third of people. Uh, and her book is basically an argument for, given the fact of these people and the way that we have good reason to think they will react to different things as people who are broadly liberal slash libertarian types, how do we go about crafting the best society? And it's basically an argument for presuming uh, taking people as they really are. And uh, it's an uncomfortable thing to think about because it does sometimes mean um, going for less in an area where you would want more with immigration for me, with different things for different people, and not just things related to race, right? Um, people might be uncomfortable with the pace that free markets change uh, a neighborhood or change an industry, right? And uh, the libertarian-leaning person in me wants to just be like tough luck all the time. And the more practical person in me is like, well, uh, we're not going to have generally free market policies for long if we don't put some breaks on the pace of change. And so I think that this applies uh, really uncomfortably for uh, libertarians across a whole range of issues. And I, and I say libertarians not in the Stenner sense, but in the Cato Institute Reason Magazine yeah. sense. Um, legalization of drugs, right? Um, I, a big part of me wants to legalize all drugs. And uh, I also think that the reaction to that 
could be more trouble than it's worth uh, when it comes to harder drugs, even though I'm definitely in favor of the kind of legalization we've seen and going even farther. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing to recognize. I live in a society with people who have very different values than me and want some things that I think are bad or wrong or suboptimal. And how do I deal with that? So something I think that that actually plays into 2020, because I think that one of the arguments you see from some people, I think that there are lots of people who genuinely like, I want to vote for Joe Biden. I think that there are some people who think I personally would rather vote for someone else. But I think voting for that person would push the people who don't like that person to vote for Trump or something like that, that kind of trying to get around the idea that electability is based on attempting to combat that third of the population. So you might personally want to vote for Bernie Sanders, but you're concerned that by doing so, you know, the idea that that would just hand the election to Trump in some sense. Do, do you think that that's playing in there as well? I don't know. You know, um, it's it's an open question when it comes to exciting your own voters and not turning off other voters. Right. And, you know, the authoritarian dynamic isn't the only dynamic in society. Um, right. Bernie Sanders' relationship to socialism, I don't know how it would play. It would excite some people. It would terrify some people. I don't think those people are necessarily authoritarians or not all of them that would be terrified by socialism. I don't really have a view of who the strongest candidate is. And, you know, I think about electability in Trump, too. I really... I don't like Kamala Harris because of her record as a prosecutor and a DA. I just read an article about this, about her um, her office fighting to keep um, a couple innocent people incarcerated and really failing to rein in um, corrupt prosecutors and police across California. And it made me think, oh, man, there would be the kinds of failures that disappointed me most about the Obama administration, but without the soaring civil liberties rhetoric that attracted me to Obama and made me support him in 2008. If she was the most electable person to beat Trump, would I want her to win the primary? Maybe. I really – I think Trump is way worse than Kamala Harris by any measure. I would love – you know. And it's, it's really tricky when you get into who is going – like gaming out the system. Uh, if Trump's election taught us anything, it's that <laughs> we are very bad at predicting. Right. And so uh, it's not that I don't think that electability should play any role, but I would caution people against thinking that they can figure it out in either direction. I would caution the people who are like, oh, if we – Bernie's going to excite people so much. And I would right. also caution the Biden's the safest candidate. I don't think either are necessarily true. How much do you think that 2016 has screwed up our ability to talk about elections in any reasonable way? I think that it's screwed up our ability to talk about most things in any reasonable way. Um, but what do you mean in particular about elections? You know, there are a couple of arguments to be made about how Trump got elected. The one I take is that we had two unpopular candidates, but based on the data, the people who really didn't like Trump really, really hated Hillary Clinton more. And they were like, you know, the lesser of two evils is Trump in this case, which based on the same data, you're not seeing that in 2020 polling, though granted it's August, we know nothing. And then there's also the idea of, you know, in several states, 80,000 people didn't vote. You know, Michigan, Wisconsin, and elsewhere. But I think that there is this idea, and I think you see it most reflected in media, specifically television, 
that Trump used some crazy meme magic and now everything he does has to be viewed with the idea that maybe this was the thing that helped him win. Ergo, it can't be a bad idea. So him tweeting nonstop about Anthony Scaramucci or making racist comments, there I think there, there's a viewpoint that, well, that's what he did in 2015 and 2016, and then he won. So that must be why he won. That seems to be based more on, you know, I watch a lot of sports. And there are occasionally moments in which a game ends in a ridiculous manner. And anyone watching that knows that, like, that will never happen again. That is not how generally the game of football is played. You know, that is a, you know, we're not going to change up how we do things or think about things because of this one crazy ending to one game. And I feel like that, for me, is what 2016 was, is that it was a crazy ending to a very weird game, but it didn't really tell us anything about the broader electorate. And I was interested to see what you think. I tend to think that Trump was a weak candidate in 2016 and, you know, he lost the popular vote and that he is a weak candidate in 2020 and that he'll more than likely lose. Um, When it comes to his strategy and whether it's insane or genius – Uh, I think it's both. I think that he understood in 2016 correctly that he had to win authoritarian personality types really big in order to win the Republican primary. And that that took a certain kind of – like exciting his base took a certain kind of politics and it was a divisive otherizing politics. And it wasn't necessarily going to make him a shoe-in to win the White House. It was just the only path that he had. Um, Ross Douthat has argued that now that he's president and has the Republican Party locked up, he could tack to the center and be much more sane and would have a better chance of winning if the economy stayed good. Trump seems to believe that, no, his only opportunity is still that path, still the otherizing chaotic on Twitter all the time. That's still the only path to victory for him or he can't help himself. Uh, I don't know whether Trump or Ross is right about that. Uh, I will say, though, that either way, I think, like, whatever the strongest path for Trump is, I think he's very beatable. And uh, I think that if Democrats run um, a sane campaign, they will beat him. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of the Republican Party. I think that there's been a lot of conversation about the future of the GOP post-Trump, whether that's 2020 or 2024. What do you think the GOP looks like then? Because I think that there is one argument that the GOP just selectively forgets everything that has happened over the last four or five years um, and decides that, you know, what we really need is to go back to Reaganism. And by Reaganism, I don't just mean economic policy, but I just mean the idea of Ronald Reagan or the concept of what he meant to the conservative movement and kind of this idea about having conservative bona fides and being able to prove your case as being a real conservative. And I think, um, you know, when I interviewed uh, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Wells, who's attempting to primary Trump, that is his entire argument is that I'm a normal Republican. I believe in tax cuts and I believe in free trade. I was part of, you know, I helped to organize NAFTA. I believe in the specific things that conservatives were Every conservative was saying in 1995, and now I'm still saying it. But then there's also the argument that someone who is smarter than Trump or more of an adherent to whatever Trumpism is 
because I don't know if Trump actually is. I don't know if Trump is actually thinking that like it's you know we need the government to to foment the formation of healthy nuclear families. I have no idea if Trump cares about that, but a lot of people think he does. You might see in a post-Trump era the rise of kind of you know like Senator Josh Hawley or a whole host of people who at one time would have been kind of libertarian leaning conservatives, but now have decided that you know Trumpism is the way forward. Um, Trumpism as you know as articulated with a very specific understanding of the role of the state in individual lives and that the state should be doing more to help people. You know, I think um, J.D. Vance argued, um, author of Hillbilly Elegy, and he argued at a speech in the Amer- for the American Conservative, which is a conservative publication, that someone needs to be making government work better and it needs to work for goals that conservatives actually care about and that we, you know, he's concerned that they've outsourced our economic and domestic policy thinking to the libertarians, that there needs to be something done to ensure that people are not just wealthy, but happy. And happiness can be defined in a whole host of different ways. But, you know, what path do you see a post-Trump GOP going in? I've thought a lot about these different strands in the conservative movement going all the way back to the end of the Bush administration and Raihan Salam and Ross Douthat writing Grand New Party and kind of sketching a non-libertarian domestic policy future for the GOP. I've also watched in mystification as the California Republican Party just continues to lose year after year instead of changing in any fundamental way to give themselves a possibility to win. And I, I think They've just refused to pass what you could think of as a diversity threshold test um, of saying we love and cherish the diversity of our state. Now here's what we want to do. They can't get that first part down even though um, the kind of immigrant inclusivism of Arnold Schwarzenegger seemed to pave a way for actually doing that effectively. But in the same way that no one without celebrity could do what Trump did, maybe no one without celebrity could do what Schwarzenegger did in California, the conservative movement – always reacts so powerfully to whoever the Democrat is in office and also rallies so powerfully with such a deep need for loyalty to whoever the president is. Even with George W. Bush, you saw a guy run on a humble foreign policy, right? And then 9-11 happening and him pivoting to the opposite of a humble foreign policy and most people sticking with him. Go back and read a lot of the things that the Claremont Institute published about foreign policy during the Bush administration and now during the Trump administration. You read the Trump stuff and you would think that this uh, globalist uh, interventionist establishment that they talk <laughs> about are just like totally foreign people that they would never associate with. Uh, so I do think that some personality will emerge and win a future Republican primary, maybe on the strength of their personality more than on the strength of their ideas, and that will powerfully shape everything. So I think it's really hard to say. So none of this is giving you an answer, but the other piece that I'm looking at and really interested in is what does conservatism look like as Fox News and talk radio, which are relatively old mediums, give way to whatever it is that younger people who consider themselves on the right read? And I don't know what that looks like, and it is terrifying in some ways. You know, when I've had conversations with folks like Daily Wire or people who write at The Blaze or a lot of online right-leaning media – it very much seems to me, and I've you know I've written about this a lot, that it part of the the basis is on reflexive anti leftism. The idea is not necessarily, and I, I think it's important that everyone has a re- 
a lot of reflexive antis. So, for example, there are a lot of people for whom, you know, even kind of the efforts to primary Trump seem to be really based on you hate Trump. I hate Trump. We can get along, even when it's Joe Walsh who said bananas racist things many, many times. Right. Um, I think Sarah Palin began this. It was the politics of schadenfreude. We love that she makes the people we don't like angry. Exactly. And so my question would be, you know, how much that will contribute to what the conservative movement or what movement conservatism sounds like in the coming years, because it's not so much, here's what we are for. You could go the reason angle and be free minds, free markets, though I don't think that there are a lot of conservatives who would necessarily go along with that right now, either because they don't believe it themselves or they recognize that that's not particularly popular. Mm -hmm. Or is it going to be on like entirely focused on we hate the same people? Right. Which I think is how, you know, that's how you get Milo Yiannopoulos at CPAC. Yeah. I, I will say I do think that the future of the Republican Party will be less free trade friendly and less globalist friendly, for lack of a better word, that this seems to be the common theme of the right across the West right now, that there is this reaction against entities like the EU, against market forces coming in and changing communities at a pace at which people are uncomfortable with. And given the media ecosystem and the rapidity of change and how unnerving that is even for people who generally like change, uh, I do think that there will be a kind of slowdown politics that's always been part of the right and fits very naturally uh, within a conservative, a partly conservative coalition much more naturally than a partly progressive coalition. And, you know, if the left is Joe Biden or the left is Bernie Sanders, the right's response just looks a lot different because of what they're fighting against, mobilizing against. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it will be anti-change in some sense. And what do you think that means for conservative-leaning libertarians? What, do, will they have a place in the future of the conservative movement? Well, I think people like me particularly, um, but also like Catherine Mengu Ward and Will Wilkinson, a left-leaning libertarian, and um, I think none of these people will ever fit in any governing coalition, that it's just uh, a permanent kind of opposition to whoever's in power and whatever's going on and all their abuses. And, you know, despite the weirdly polarized um, left-right fights, a lot of the abuses are pretty consistent from, you know, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration to the Trump administration, surveillance and mass incarceration and the drug war. And uh, things haven't really changed that much um, except in these little narrow areas. And and even on things like immigration where Trump has been horrifically worse than Obama, Obama was still bad in a lot of those ways. And it's kind of a matter of degree more than kind. Uh, the rhetoric is much more terrible and alarming, but m- many of the policies, the people who are fighting against it was just like, oh, man, it's getting worse, but we were fighting before. Uh, so I-, I think it's important for there to be a kind of independent-minded faction that is nominally on the right and that is saying, uh, no, stop, uh, go in a better direction. And insofar as the ideas of those people are taken and co-opted by coalitions that they're not a part of, that's a good thing. 
Uh, I, I always think that the best case for a Reason Magazine or a Justin Amash presidential candidate or something is that someone in one of the two parties takes their best ideas and they influence the debate in that way. I don't think there's any prospect in the foreseeable future for uh, any kind of presidential candidate winning that I would be like, yes, I am excited about them in every way. Right. No, I think that 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 time has ended. Um, something that you've written on a lot that I'm really interested in is on the lack of an American anti-war movement. And I think that that's particularly fascinating because whenever I know that um, for a host of people who are slightly older than I am, you know, their opposition to the Iraq War was extremely formative in their development. And you know, I well remember the thousands of people who protested in 2003 and. You know, when you t uh, MSNBC's Chris Hayes has talked about this a couple of times, what happened? There is some element, maybe not of a movement, but of an anti-war sentiment. And I think Trump played on that somewhat. Granted, I think that that was part of him just saying things because you can't, you know, being anti-war and also saying that you're going to bomb the shit out of people, it doesn't really go together. But, you know, what happened? We, why do we not, in your view, have a anti-war movement while we continue. You know, we've been at war in some senses since my freshman year of high school, and I turned 32 next Tuesday. Like that's Yeah. It's insanity to me. It is insanity to me too. It's it's insanity to me that, you know, Obama won twice running as uh, the candidate who voted against the Iraq war. And then he appointed a cabinet full of Iraq war supporters. Then Hillary Clinton was nominated despite her vote for the Iraq war. And I don't know if Trump could have beaten a Democrat who had opposed the Iraq war. Now, Joe Biden is considered by many Democrats to be the candidate most likely to be Trump, the safest candidate, despite his vote for the Iraq war, which I don't understand why no one brings that up as a liability in a general election. It seems like a clear liability. And yet I don't see his rivals particularly um, using that, even the ones who opposed the war. I think that the Iraq war did have an odd amount of bipartisan elite support. And part of the reason you don't see a kind of anyone associated with the Iraq war uh, shall no longer have credibility is because so many people supported it who are right. in so many positions of power that it's not um, – doesn't seem – yeah. viable for them to say that. It's it's funny because there's that saying that, you know, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan yeah. unless it's the Iraq war. <laughs> yeah. And even now, uh, you know, I think obviously it has it's partly the difference between a kind of Vietnam era policy of drafting people uh, and having a big footprint of how many people are in the country mm -hmm. to a relatively small footprint, relatively small casualties. Uh, I think that the Media has been prevented from things like showing coffins and dead bodies and should be more aggressive in showing the bloodshed that has to do with the war. I think Obama running as an anti-war candidate and then continuing the wars just took a lot of the steam uh, out of the anti-war left. Um, and I think that Trump being such an awful figure and being anti-war uh, has in a weird way boosted the profile of uh, people like Bill Kristol, who uh, has lots of excellent critiques about Trump and also has supported wars everywhere that we've had them and lots of places where we have it. And so it is confusing uh, in some ways. I wish I could know to what degree it is a kind of conscious elite 
decision to fund something like a military industrial complex uh, and how much it has to do with other factors like people not just thinking, just not thinking about it because it's far away and, uh, and because, not that many people are dying. Right. And I also think that um, who goes to war now has changed. As you brought up with the lack, the end of the draft, yeah. being in the military, you know, we are now getting to the case in which people whose fathers went to Iraq are now going to serve in Iraq. Yeah. But the the toll that takes is limited to military families. Right whom I think in some ways we deify, but then we separate. Yeah. You know, we think of military families and when we honor them at college football games or talk about them, but there's very much of a sense of like, that's a different thing. That's a, th you know, and the war they're going to, the war that their children are dying in, we don't seem to consider as much. Yeah. Yeah. And, when I, and also, you know, something like the rise of ISIS was unexpected and a terrifying, difficult problem. And it doesn't map easily onto any ideology of interventionism or non-interventionism. Um, what is one to do in that situation? It It isn't entirely clear. Um, so, um, and a last factor is, uh, I think that the rise of drones has been huge and underappreciated. That uh, the fact that you can conduct lethal operations without any risk of having someone on your side die and the blowback that comes along with that and the psychological difference it just tremendously lowers the cost to the United States of waging war everywhere. We've been having, uh, we've talked a lot about language and definitions, like the definition of racism. And I know you've also written about, um, you know, how terms like reparations are pretty vague. But something you as a libertarian adhere to is the, the idea of liberty. And I think the concept of liberty is on the list of things where it's a term that we think about a lot and adhere to, but we each have our own definition of it. And you know, I've written, um, I think that I, I've gotten some pushback on this, but something I think a lot about is how many people are personal libertarians in which they're very concerned about the state intervening in, intervening in their lives, but they're less concerned with the state intervening in those other people's lives who are doing bad things. Mm -hmm. And I think that this idea of kind of situational liberty is concerning to me. But for, you know, how would you define the idea of liberty in, in the first place? My practical answer tends to be vociferously protecting the things in the Bill of Rights, um, especially uh, my own focus on privacy and freedom of speech. And you get into really thorny situations very quickly, especially with something like privacy in a world where people are giving up their privacy very quickly. Uh, I think one of the differences that has fascinated me most studying reactions to surveillance states around the world is the way in which uh, Americans fear the government most of all and Germans fear corporations most of all uh, with respect to privacy. Uh, I think probably when it comes to privacy, libertarians underrate the degree to which corporations and private companies are a threat to liberty. Um, but, uh, you know, mostly um, – Mostly, I would just say that I don't spend a lot of time and effort parsing the fine differences between, you know, you go to a gathering of libertarians, as I do sometimes, and they want to know, are you an anarcho-capitalist? Are you a minarchist? Like, they want to draw very fine distinctions. And I'm like, man, I hope that we get to a place one day where I have to draw these fine distinctions. But right now, I would just like there to be uh, – 
fewer innocent people convicted because of bad crime labs, and I would like there to be fewer laws against consensual behavior, whether it is drugs or uh, prostitution or uh, just basic kind of clear-cut things that I don't think raise the thorniest questions in a society. Uh, I often think about the free societies around the world, broadly speaking, and uh, what are the things that you can do there that you can't do here that don't seem to cause any problems there, right? You can go and uh, there's no door on the restaurants in Spain that say no alcohol beyond this point. Obviously, that's a small thing compared to the things I write about mostly, police abuses, drone strikes, right? I care about that a lot right. less, of course. Uh, at the same time, it strikes me as a thing that is like uh, – we do seem to have a lot of laws that don't really uh, solve any problem, that is just kind of overweening control. Also with the assumption that all laws must be enforced, which is why I've recently gotten very into and very concerned about kind of local ordinances, like with regard to, say, grass height or noise ordinances. Absolutely. Because the implication is that if you do not adhere by these, someone— probably someone with a gun is going to come to your home and say, hey, why is your grass so long? Yeah. There's an ordinance. I must enforce this law. And I would say that um, if there's ever a libertarian free state, I'll probably get kicked out of it for failing to conform to, uh, you know, sometime when the harm principle wasn't necessarily violated, but I still favored some law or government action. Right. But uh, I do think that the insights of libertarianism and the um, the case for liberty is often undermade, understated. Um, I'm writing about housing policy right now, and I have a big piece coming out about housing in California that should be out in the next couple of months. And one thing that strikes me is the way in which zoning laws that are contributing to homelessness and residential segregation and the ability of people to people of all kinds to afford housing, um, there is a sense in which this is the government telling people that own property, you may not build an apartment building on this lot. You may only build a single family home. And there is a liberty case to be made, a, pro a property and liberty case to be made uh, that we would be much better off if those property owners were able to exercise their liberty to build on their land and to satisfy a market that exists, right? It's You often don't hear the housing debate framed in those terms. And there are lots of other ways to frame it that uh, are very useful too. Uh, but to me, that is an example of a way that I really value liberty and think that um, a more, a, a more pro-liberty framework would actually go a long way to solving a really terrible social problem. And uh, it's not to say that there should be no zoning laws ever, just uh, more liberty, appreciation for liberty injected into the process. So we like to conclude the show by asking our guests for three book recommendations that have books that may have influenced you or how you think that you would like to recommend to our audience. Definitely The Authoritarian Dynamic by Karen Stenner, which we talked about. Uh, the book Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rausch is uh, a great treatment of free speech, uh, not in terms of what the First Amendment protects and people having a right to say what they please, but actually in terms of the way that free speech plays into the process of knowledge in a country and the importance uh, and all of the gains we get 
from free speech generating knowledge in institutions like academia. It's a kind of different approach to free speech than the one that Mill writes about and particularly worth reading now as academia is riven by debates about what kind of speech should be allowed. Uh, And The Constitution of Liberty by Friedrich Hayek for anyone who is libertarian curious. The Road to Serfdom is often the Hayek book that people know and go to. Uh, I think The Constitution of Liberty is much more interesting and relevant right now. And it gets into questions of what kind of knowledge we possess as individuals, what kind of knowledge we possess collectively, and how we can take into account the preferences of lots of people with diverse characteristics and preferences and values. And uh, yeah, those are the books I recommend. Connor Friedersdorf, thank you for joining me on The Ezra Klein Show. It's been my pleasure. And that's our show. Thank you to Connor for coming on the show. Thank you to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, our researcher, Roger Karma, and The Ezra Klein Show will return in a few days.